0: So I wanted to begin with a question I wanted to ask you, and, I, and I'd just like for you to take it to heart and think about it, and that is: when you lose your testimony, does Jesus lose His? And one of the things that we have as a Christian that's very special to us is our testimony. And sometimes we will talk about our past as a unbeliever and the things that we were doing and living and the way we lived, and then God saved us and. We were so thankful to be saved and God delivered us from all of these things. And then sometimes when we come into our Christian part of the testimony, we try to make it look as pretty as we possibly can. But to be honest, as Christians, sometimes our testimonies are not all that pretty. And sometimes even as Christians and believers, there might be things that we have in our life that have not turned out well and maybe we have been found to be wanting in our life we haven't lived so well we haven't done so well maybe a particular christian has fallen into a sin that has been publicly exposed and they are covered in shame and disgrace in their life and so we typically would say of somebody like that that they have ruined their testimony they have wrecked their testimony they've lost their testimony And I think basically what we mean by those phrases as the Christian church is it's over for you. We're done with you because you were given the chance when you became a Christian to walk with Jesus, but you didn't do well. And so now we're just going to put you off to the side. It doesn't mean that you can't come to church, but when you do come to church, you just have to sit in, in a place where you're just out of sight and out of mind because you have brought reproach upon Christianity. You've brought reproach upon us. And a lot of times people live their life looking for those people. They're, they're unaware of the beams that are in their own eyes and they're fixated with the splinters that are in other people's eyes. And to be honest, we all have splinters. We all have things in our life that God is dealing with us about. When I come to the Bible, I'm very grateful that God has chosen to spare no detail in some of the lives of his choices people. I don't believe that God is revealing these things to us so that we can see how bad they were, but how great God is. How God is able to use The worst of the worst, because when you understand grace, you understand that's all of us. There's no worst of the worst. There's just the good Jesus and the rest of us. But religion makes us think that some of us are better than others. And that's just not the case. But God has chosen to expose some of his choice servants and spare no cost at exposing their sins and certainly one of those men is David. Um, this is one of David's choice. Or God's choice servants. And the Lord certainly loves David. God even said that he liked David. Um, not just loved him. But liked him. Enjoyed him. Took delight in him. And um, But David's sins were uh, written in record. And for everybody to read. And everybody to see. And God says of David that. He was a man after my own heart. This is a man, and just stay with me for a few moments, but this is a man who is not a really good man in so many ways. And he certainly would not be considered a really respectable or great Christian man. Um, He was a mass murderer. I know he was a soldier. I know he was a military leader and he fought for Israel. And and as a soldier and as a military leader fighting for Israel and fighting for God and defending his people. There were people's lives that he had to take like Goliath. And I'm not insinuating he was a murderer in that regard. I'm saying that when David committed his adultery. And so he was also an adulterer. um, When he committed his adultery with Bathsheba. In an effort to hide that sin, and I wondered today, if David were alive in our world today, would he have had Bathsheba get an abortion? I don't know. The lengths that David was willing to go to, to cover up his sin, was great. Because when he couldn't get people to line up the way he wanted them to line up, particularly Bathsheba's husband, He sent him back to war and he told the generals of the army, send Uriah into the battle where it's the hottest. And when the conflict begins, retreat the rest of the army. And so literally Uriah and his platoon were slaughtered in an effort to make sure this man died. Many other men had to die alongside of him in order to cover up David's crime. Mass murder. That's not a, that's not a good thing on your resume. You know? And the committing of adultery, the numbering of the tribes of Israel, and, and even in his own home and his own family, David was really a terrible father. I mean he really failed as a father. He had many wives, he had several children from each of his wives and there was one particular relationship that he had. He had a son named Absalom and Absalom they had a had a sister one of David's daughters whose name was Tamar and And another son, a stepbrother, had a desire for Tamar. And he wanted her. And he wanted to be with her. So he pretended to be sick. And he wanted his stepsister Tamar to come in and take care of him. And when she came in to take care of him, he raped her. And David did nothing. He did nothing. For two years he did nothing. Absalom. Tamar's brother is considering what has now happened in his family. This this man who writes psalms. This man who has been personally prepared by God to be the king of Israel. That God has prophetically spoken so highly of. Has allowed rape in our family and he does nothing about it. Absalom waits for two years. Maybe Absalom's thinking... Certainly, dad is planning some type of justice here. I mean, he's not going to just let this guy get away with it. But after two years, nothing happens. So Absalom kills the stepbrother who did this. And when Absalom kills the stepbrother, he flees for his life and leaves the country. And Absalom is gone for about three years. David misses him. So David sends word to Absalom and says, I want you to come home, come back, come back to Israel, come back to Jerusalem. And Absalom does, but David won't see him. He has no place at the table. So he comes back. So Absalom in this whole relationship is just so marred and scarred by his father, David, that there is such dysfunction in David's family and in David's home. We would sit back if we were just to look at that picture, we would probably consider, how can this be a man of God? And yet this guy, David. Walked so closely with the Lord. He, he is one of the most instrumental prophets in the Old Testament. He wasn't just a songwriter. He wasn't just a worshiper of God. But he was literally a prophet who gave valuable testimony of the coming Messiah. God spoke to him. God spoke through him. God fought for him. God warred through him. And yet he has a life that is checkered like this. So I ask you the question, when you lose your testimony, does Jesus lose his? I would just like to say to you this, and and the sooner you learn this, probably the better. Your testimony is sin. That's all you're going to do. And the sooner that we learn that. And we stop laboring with all of our might, working on these projects of our life to better ourselves and improve ourselves. And look up to God and say, hey, do you like this? Is this good to you? Are you pleased with this? The the real testimony of our lives, our testimonies, the testimonies that we are building is failure. In other words, it's like this. At the last supper when Jesus is there with his disciples And he says that you are going to forsake me tonight. All of you are going to be scattered. Here is Peter's testimony. This is Peter's testimony. I will never forsake you. That's his testimony. Now he believes it. He means it. He's sincere. He really believes. He has this capacity to be faithful to Jesus through the very end. So Peter steps up his testimony and he says to Jesus, I will even die with you. So Jesus says to Peter, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And Peter responds back to the Lord. No, I won't. I know who I am. I know what I am. I will not deny you. And Peter's testimony is failure. It's sin. He did not do what he boasted that he would do. And he sinned against God and he was wrecked for it. He weeps bitterly over his sin. He feels like his life is over. Even after the resurrection, Peter's decision is, I'm going to go back to fishing. He wasn't taking the little weekend fishing trip. He's going back to his trade. What future is there for me? Look what I've done. Judas took his life, but all practical reasons, my life is over until Jesus Christ meets him on the shore and this is just what i would like to express in the story even at that meeting that jesus cooks breakfast for peter your testimony is ruined your testimony is wrecked this is where mine comes in your testimony Is how you can't please God, how you can't serve God, how you can't better yourself, how you can't improve yourself, how you cannot be like the holy God. And when you come to the end and realize this is all you've got to offer, then that's where my testimony steps in and I redeem I forgive, I recover, I pour out grace, and I begin to build a testimony out of the lives of ruined people who deserve nothing, and I give them everything. That's where Jesus' testimony comes in. And so life can be pretty difficult. Life is very hard. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks about there are these incredible powers and principalities that are highly organized and they literally strategize about you. You know, we have in our intelligence departments, you know, the FBI's most wanted. You would be on hell's most wanted. You know, your picture would be there. Your name would be there. You think you're a nobody. Well, think again, because the moment you turn to Jesus Christ, you became a committed enemy of hell. And they know about you and they strategize about you and they want you to fall and they want you to fail. And Satan wants to accuse you and he wants to condemn you and he wants you to throw your life away and give up when you need to fall before Jesus and let Jesus Christ build his testimony. And sometimes Christians that have gone through the the despair of their life or the dark night of their life or they have come face to face with their failure, you're you're, you're possibly at the greatest point of usefulness to God than you've ever been in your life. Because now it's all God. You've got nothing to offer him. It's all God. And God has to get us to that point. It's a very difficult point to be to or or come to. So I want to say this to you this morning. I'm really coming today. To those of you that have wandered away in your hearts. You're here. But your heart's not here. You made it to church. But you've practically given up on ever being anything or anyone that amounts to anything. Because you know you. You know you better than anybody else knows you. And you're ashamed. And you're guilt ridden. I'm coming to you. I have an answer for you today. I'm coming to you, those of you that Satan is seeking to overthrow through condemnation and abuse. I'm coming to those of you who are in the ruin of sin. You have sinned. You have sinned. And you know how you have sinned, and your sin terrifies you. And if anybody knew what you know about yourself, You are so sickened by it that you would be so discarded and thrown away by everyone that knows you. And I want to tell you that's a lie from hell. You will not be thrown away. You will not be discarded. But there would be a rush of love and help and care given to you to restore you with Jesus Christ. And Satan is lying to you. And Satan is trying to get you to give up. Through condemnation. I want to say this to you. These are beautiful scriptures. There's a word mentioned. Not very often. It's mentioned a lot in our circles. But it's called backsliding. It's not mentioned a lot in the Bible. I know Jeremiah mentions it one time. And I'm just going to refer to this. But the backslider. And you pretty much have an impression of that. You might call it the prodigal child. You just. You just. Gone away from God. You just you just went away. Maybe you had this relationship with God in your life, and you went away, and you just lived in all of this sin. Maybe you're even here this morning, and you've had an abortion, and you know what that does. Maybe maybe you've had something like that. Maybe you have been in some sexual sin, or something of that nature. You have just backslidden. You have just drifted so far from God, and maybe you're sitting there wondering, what am I even doing in church? And I can't believe this guy is even speaking about this stuff. Who's talked to him? And God has talked to me. And the thing that God says to you. That he told me to say to you. Is tell them. I'm married to them. That's what he wants you to know. I'm married to you. Don't retreat from me. Don't leave me. I have, I have brought you to myself to be with me. This is the words of God through the prophet Jeremiah when he says, Go and proclaim these words. Say, return, you backslider, and I will not cause my anger to fall upon you. Isn't that great? Isn't that the most wonderful thing you, as a backslider you could ever hear from God? Come back to me. I will not allow my anger to come upon you. Oh my gosh, I mean, right now in your heart, start turning to him and and know that this is true. He says, I am merciful and I do not want to keep my anger with you, says the Lord. All I want you to do is acknowledge your iniquity. Don't hide it. Don't say it was because of this or it was the devil that made me do it. Acknowledge it. Confess it. Agree with me. I'm so merciful. if you acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against me. You have not obeyed my voice. And turn, O backslider, for I'm married to you. And God will give you his grace. God will give you mercy and you say, well, if I turn to God, then what do I do? If I come to God and, and, and I've got this sin in my life and I've got this rebellion in my life and, and, and I, don't, I don't even know what to say to him, that's all right. God even tells you what to say. This is so good. You talk about a God who goes the second mile to help us get right with him. So first of all, I just want you to turn in regards to the fact that I'm married to you and I love you. And I don't want to be angry with you. And when you come and you confess your sin to me and your iniquity, I'm not going to allow my anger to come upon you. I'm going to be merciful to you. So when you come to me, he said through another prophet, this is what I want you to say. Take with you words, turn to the Lord and say, take away all my iniquity. And receive me graciously. Who couldn't do that? Who wouldn't do that? And I will not say anymore to the work of my hands that you're our gods. For in you, God, the fatherless find mercy. God says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely for my anger is turned away from him. Let me read this to you. This, this scripture. It says in Psalm Psalm 103. God forgives all our iniquities. He heals all of our diseases. He redeems our life from destruction. He crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As the east is from the west, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. For he knows our frame and remembers that we're dust. This I recall to my mind, Jeremiah said in Lamentations. Therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good for a man to both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Praise God. And so we're coming back to this guy, David. That God says, now stay with me. God says about David, after David is dead... And God is speaking to David's son Solomon. And you want to figure another thing out about God? Why Solomon? Why would Solomon be God's choice to become the lineage of the Messiah and the heir to the throne of Israel when he is the son of a relationship that began in adultery? Go figure that one out. But Solomon is the chosen one. And God said to Solomon after David was dead. Your father was a man after my own heart. My question is why? What was it about David? Because he wasn't a good man. And if all we knew that David was a man after God's own heart, we would picture in our minds this incredible guy. Not a mass murderer, not an adulterer, not a man who numbered Israel and because of that tens of thousands of his family members had to die. Not a man who was allowing his family to be so dysfunctional that there was injustice and rape that just tore through his house, caused his own son to hate him. We wouldn't know all of that if God had not exposed that to us. And why did God expose that to us? So we could point our fingers at David? No. So that we could hope in a God of righteousness and redemption. Every one of us would be able to have hope that God literally loved this man David. And said he was a man after my own heart after he was dead. So I just simply say, listen guys, for all of you in this room. There's hope for every one of us that's still breathing. Regardless of where you are or where you've been or what you've gone through or what you've done, your life can end as a woman after God's heart, as a man after God's heart. And your latter days can be better. David's latter days were not great. So I want to tell you just a little bit of the story as we come up in David's life. This is another episode in David's life that I mentioned to you he was a liar. He was a liar. And here's the situation David has escaped out of Saul's house, and he is in a meeting with Jonathan, who's David's son. And Jonathan and David are best friends. And Jonathan says to David that, you know, we need to go to my father's house. It's going to be dinner soon, and my my father's called all the people together for us to be at the table. And David says, Jonathan, I'm not going. John says, you have to go. Dad won't understand. And David says, Jonathan, your dad wants to kill me. John says, like, there's no way, David. Daddy doesn't want to kill you. Jonathan, he wants to kill me. I assure you of that. I cannot go. He'll take my life. And so they conspire. And Jonathan and David make up a lie. And they tell a story. And they agreed to it and and so this is the story Jonathan you go back home to your dad and when your dad's there and he asks about me tell your dad that I had an emergency in my family and I had to go home to be with my family which that was a lie and David wasn't there he was waiting in a field for Jonathan's answer. Jonathan agrees. He goes home. He talks to his dad. His dad says, where's David? And John says, David asked me permission if he could go home because his family needed him. So he's not here. I gave him permission. And Saul basically says to Jonathan, you are such a weak man. Don't you know that as long as David's alive, you'll never have the throne. And Jonathan said, that's not true, dad, that, that, you know, David's a good man. Jonathan is there And Saul gets up and throws his javelin at Jonathan, his own son, seeking to pierce him. Jonathan escapes that. And so Jonathan goes back out into the field. And long story short, Jonathan says to David, you're right. My dad wants to kill you. So this is where we part ways, David, because it's not safe for you. But I love you and David loved Jonathan and David went his way. When David leaves... He goes of all places to the house of his enemies. And he goes to the land of Gath. And if you remember the Goliaths were of Gath. And he's not only in the land of Gath. He's literally in the the king's palace in Gath. And David is there. I mean David is famous. And the king of Gath sees David in the palace. And the king says... What is this guy doing here? I know who that is. that's David. They're singing in Israel that Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands of us. What is he doing in my palace? David, quick as he is, understands what's going on, immediately begins to pretend like he's a madman. He's scared. He's fearful for, his. this is the man of God. This is the giant slayer. This is the guy that killed the bear and killed the lion. And he's absolutely overwhelmed in the presence of his enemies. And so he causes his mouth to foam. He starts spitting up, practically vomiting, foaming at the mouth. He gets down beside the palace door and he begins to scratch the door like this. Just scratching it, foaming at the mouth. And the king of Gath said, this man is mad get him out of here. And so they threw David out of the palace, acting like a madman. You're, you're king of Israel. You're man of God. You're God after, after God's own heart, man, full of faith and courage and willing to do anything scared. How, how how many of you can identify with a David like that? You're at school and everybody's speaking about against God and you're scared to speak up everybody's talking about these new movements in our culture and you're scared to correct it because you know the moment you do and you disagree with something, you're going to be crucified by the public. Come on. You're you're just like David. I'm just like David. Scared sometimes to stand up when I need to stand up. And it's so much easier to cower when it's hard to stand up when so many are against me. And so David flees. And when he leaves, he he goes to the priest's house. It gets worse. He goes to the priest's house. And there before the priest, he comes in there, and the priest says, David, what are you doing here? And David lies. He just makes up another story. And he says, Well, the king has sent me on an errand so quick I wasn't even able to prepare my my my, my food or anything like that. And the and, and the priest said, Um, you have nothing, and David says, "I I know I need some food. I need some food for my men." And the, and the priest said, "We we don't really have common bread here, David. We have we have this show bread and this other stuff, and we were changing it out." And and David said, "Well, let me have that for my men." And 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 the priest said, "Well, it's common, but it's not common. And have you and your men been without a woman lately?" You even ask that question to a man of God? So David says, We're good. We've been three days without a woman. Okay, you can have the bread. And David takes the bread and he says, You got any weapons here? And the priest said, I I have Goliath's sword. David says, I'll take that. It's great. So he leaves with the sword and David's gone. And he goes on his little journey. He's working his way to the cave of Adullam. Which is a cave of depression. And depressed people begin to meet him there. And his family meets him there. But just before that. There's this this young man who comes running after David. And he says to David. David they killed the priest. Listen. Saul just killed 85. Of my uncles. And my cousins and my family. 85 priests were just killed. You know what David said? I knew it. Because when I was there with the priest, I saw Doeg, who was one of Saul's servants, in the temple with me. And he was watching us. And I knew he was going to turn us in. I knew it. But you know what David didn't do? He didn't protect the priest. He didn't cover up the lie. He didn't or, or expose himself as lying. He knew those priests were going to be slaughtered and he allowed it to happen. What kind of a man does that. Don't go thinking you're better. Just understand God's allowing us to see his life and it's not beautiful, right? And then the episode, he's there in Adullam and these men come to him and David forms his mighty men. And then David lives this life. He gets to the throne and then the rape happens in his family. And this is where we're coming to. The rape takes place in his family. His own daughter is raped by one of his sons. He does nothing about it. Absalom takes his brother's life. And then Absalom flees for his life. Three years later, Absalom comes back. He's not really allowed to be with his father. There's still no justice. There's still no changing of David's heart. And so Absalom begins a conspiracy. And in this conspiracy, Absalom is going to take over the throne. So Absalom does what he does. He starts influencing the young men in Israel. And the young men in Israel begin to follow him. And Absalom begins to get this big parade of people. And he, and he just rides in in his splendor to the gates of Jerusalem and to the gates of other cities. Gates being the places where the judges would judge and give justice to the people. And Absalom would be there. And Absalom would take the hands of the men. And he would kiss their hands, which was a sign of honor. And he would kiss their hands and he would honor them. And he'd say, you know what? I'm here for you. My dad doesn't care about you. But I'm here for you. I care about you. If my dad were a good king. He would give you justice. But he's not a good king. And there is no justice with him. But with me there's justice. And if you would follow me as king. Then I would take care of you. And everybody would be treated right. And and the Bible says that all of Israel. Went after Absalom. All of them. And now we pick up with our story in 2 Samuel. And I want you to. Just read a few of this these verses with me, because I, I I think they're phenomenal scriptures and revelations of of the heart that David had, why he was different. David's counselor Ahithophel has gone after Absalom. Verse six it says Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Chapter fifteen, Second Samuel. And now Absalom is marching to David's city. And instead of fighting, David packs up his house. He packs up his family and he leaves the city. He's not going to fight his son and he's not going to defend his throne. He's leaving the city. I want you to see what makes this man different in his heart. Than many other people. When David is leaving the city. In verse 18 beginning there. You can see that. A lot of the people following David out of the city. Are not even really Jewish. They're foreigners. It really is as though all of Israel was against David. He didn't have a great testimony in his family. He didn't have a great testimony among his people. And certainly the house of Saul despised David. With the exception of maybe Mephibosheth. But even at this point, Mephibosheth is excited thinking that he's going to get the throne back. Because he was Jonathan's son. And so David leaves. There's this one guy. He just moved to the city yesterday. And now he's leaving with David today. And David turns back. and says, you just came yesterday. Don't come with me. Stay here. And, and this guy says, David, I'm going wherever you go. And if you read down a little bit further, David, David is going out of the city. And here comes the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And David sees them carrying the Ark of the what, what are you doing? What are you doing? Manipulating God's presence for me. You go back to the city with the Ark of God. And if God delights in me, then God will bring me back here and I will see his presence again. But if God does not delight in me, then let God do what he will with me. And through this season in David's life, people literally came out in their yards when David was marching by and they were throwing rocks at David. And they were cursing him and saying, you're a bloody man. See, David, you've been a thief all along. You stole the throne of Saul, and now you're getting your justice from God. One of David's men said, can I go take his head off? And David says, no. Oh, would to God we could be like this. Because David said, no, maybe God wants him to do this to me. Don't stop him. Maybe there's some things God wants said to you. Even if in your heart you know it's not true. You know it's not right about you. Maybe it's just going to shake you a little bit. To maybe look into your heart for just a second. To ask the question could it be true about me. We We tend to think that. Nothing wrong could really be about me because I'm I'm genuinely honest and right inside of my heart. And we know we're not, but we like to convince ourselves that we are. And so David says, let him curse me. This could be the will of God. It could be what God wants him to do to me. We'll just leave that into the hands of God. and, And perhaps God will show me mercy as a result of this. And then we're going to read these verses. And it says this in verse 30, and David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet and wept as he went up and had his head covered and he went barefoot and all the people that was with him covered every man his head and they went up weeping as they went up. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh Lord, I pray you turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshipped God. And I love this story because I honestly I love this guy, David, as I understand him. I love this guy. I am, I am so humbled that there was a man who could be so exposed and still worship God. I'm humbled by that. Not bitter, not angry, but his whole life in front of the whole world for everyone to see, for every generation to read about him. And all he wants is God. All he wants is God's heart. His life is in shambles. This man is living in some of the greatest pain that a man could possibly ever understand. The weight and the guilt of failure throughout his whole life is pressed upon him. And he can do nothing but cry and go up. But thank God he's going up. My son hates me, but I'm going up. My nation has rejected me, but I'm going up. I may have lost my throne, but I'm going up. There is a conspiracy against my whole life and kingdom, but I'm going up. I'm going up. You can have the throne. Take it. Take the throne. Take the kingdom. What is that? The man before me loved his throne so much that he lost his God. So take the throne, but give me God. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm going to do when I've lost everything, when I've lost my testimony, When I've lost my family. When I've lost my friends. When I've lost my throne. When I've lost my ministry. When I've lost my Sunday school class. When I've lost the confidence of people in my life. I'm going to take my shoes off. And I'm going to go up. And I'm going to worship God. I'm not going to stay down here. I'm not going to be defeated. I'm not going to sink in depression. And God it hurts. Yes it hurts. Oh it hurts to have your son hate you. Because you failed him. Yes it hurts. Yes, it hurts to have a family that is broken because I allowed it to be dysfunctional. But if there's anything good that's going to come out of this, it cannot be in my depression. I've got to cry as I go, but I'm going to go up and I'm going to get to the top of this mountain and I'm going to worship God. And that's where David's different. Because he did it. He got to the top of the mountain where he worshiped. It's a desert place and a desert time for David. Now, as you look at his life and you weave your life into it with the realities of your pain and your hurt and your story and your failure, I get it. But the purpose of God showing you his life. Is to be able to say to you today. I will receive your worship. And I will allow you to ascend this mountain. Even if you have to cry as you go. Because all of life is falling in on you. And I will be there. And I will strengthen you. And I will recover you. And I will give you a testimony. I will give it. I will produce it. So that throughout the ages. You're not going to be seen as this bad man. But you're going to be seen as the man after my own heart. David, that's what I'm going to do for you. And you could not do that for yourself. And beloved, I come to you this morning. in the struggle of your life. And the hidden shame that you carry and the guilt that you are dealing with to tell you that the answer in this analogy, it's on the top of that mountain, if you will. Not that you have to exert some energy. You have to just have faith. It's in worshiping God. Even if you have to cry, worship him. Go, climb, go up, don't go down, go up. Worshiping God, giving thanks to God, and this God will answer, and He will turn your sorrow into joy. I want you to stand with me. I have just one other thing to say to you this morning. I pray that you receive this. the passage in the Bible that says what man would start to build a tower who didn't know if he could finish it. So before he ever... Y'all listen to me carefully. If we just not move for a second. A man's going to build a tower. He's going to find out, do I have the money to finish this? Do I have the ability to complete it? And once he makes sure... That I can start it and finish it. I'm going I'm to build it. Before God ever created the heavens and the earth. He made sure. That he could redeem you. He made sure. That there was a way. That he could finish what he wanted for your life. Regardless of what's happened, if the devil did this, or if you did this, or if other things did this, there is, in God's mind, absolute redemption for you. Religion will crucify you, but the church of Jesus Christ will not. It will help you. Before the foundations of the world, Jesus Christ was slain. And God knew, as you would stand here this morning... The path that you've walked, the places you've been, the things that you've done, what you've watched, where you've been. God knows I can redeem you. And I do love you. Tell them, Lee, that I'm married to them. And I don't want to be angry with them. Just tell them to come and acknowledge it. And I will be so merciful to them. First thing God ever wanted you to know about himself was he's a creator. In the beginning, God created. And he took the form and the darkness of this universe. And he created order and life. If you will let him speak into your life today, then he can begin to create order out of the chaos that your life is in. If you let him. The condition of that was the spirit of the Lord had to move upon the face of the deep. Would you, by coming into this altar, be able to say to the Lord, I desire your Holy Spirit to move upon my life. Because as your spirit moves upon my life, I believe you will speak into the chaos of my life and give me order and purpose. And you will make a new creation out of me. And Lord, out of the mess that I've made, I don't know how, but you will make something beautiful. Would you do that now? Would you just come to the Lord and give Him that permission to let the Holy Spirit just move on your life to make something beautiful out of your life? And I say to all of us this morning, let's just allow Jesus to build His testimony in us. We try so hard. We work so hard, but we fail let Jesus build his testimony. For any of you here this morning that have an overwhelming sense of shame or guilt because of the sin in your life, may I comfort you with the hope that we have in Jesus. And may I assure you that nobody in this room is better than you. Only Jesus is. And he loves you. And we, the church of Jesus Christ, love you. And we desire to support you and help you in your walk with God. Now bring with you words, what were those words? Lord, forgive my sin and have grace upon my life. Be gracious to me, God. Ask the Lord to be gracious to you. Just begin to worship Him out of your heart. Let your heart offer up prayers to God right now. For He is near to you and He hears you. He loves you. He cares for you.